0: So the question I've got for you is whether grammar is important in copywriting. So, for example, may we start a sentence with and?
1: That's a really good question. Let's ask Rishi Dastadak.
0: Hello listener, you are very welcome to B2B Q&A, the podcast where we go in search of an answer to your question about B2B content writing. This is episode 101.
1: And in a moment, we'll ask poet and brand linguist Richie Dastada a question from Andy Bacon. Just how important is correct grammar in B2B copy? And is it okay to start a sentence with a conjunction?
0: We'll also hear a copywriting tip of the month from John Kerrison and reveal which B2B buzzwords you most want to banish into Room 101. But first, introductions. My name's David Maguire. I'm Creative Director at Radix Communications, the B2B writing agency, and I'm joined by a wonderful guest co-host. It's B2B tech content strategist, writer, consultant, and all-round force of nature, Irene Trindle irene hello
1: (laughs) hey david thanks for having me on Uh, it's great to be here
0: (laughs) very good to have you on the show was that an appropriate introduction (laughs) yeah it's very good thanks for that (laughs) And so you're working under the name Say What at the moment. I'll try to pronounce the, it has a question mark in it.
1: (laughs) Is that right? Yeah, it does. It has a question mark. And um, I think usually when I go on the company's house website, they don't like that. So it's Say What? Say What? Question mark limited. And that is always a problem in any on (laughs) the online forms. (laughs) And
0: that's kind of a, a content consultancy for B2B tech firms. Is that right?
1: Yes so I help um B2B tech companies or whether that's big companies or startups with um basically with their messaging with their positioning with finding um finding a good story you know that they identify with and that you know that also their prospects obviously are going to recognize and uh, and respond to.
0: And you've always sort of been drawn to B2B tech it seems. What is it that that you like about it so much?
1: <laughs> well it's a few reasons actually i think um so i think for one thing what i like about it is that it's it's hard there's you know there are no easy answers so there's it's it, there's always a challenge there um the other thing i love is that b2b tech gets incredibly nichey. so you learn the most amazing uh, things about the most obscure subjects and professions and so that's pretty cool about it but I think the other thing is that you know a lot of um a lot of tech clients aren't really they're usually super smart but often aren't great at communication. Um so there's kind of you know you've got a responsibility to do right by your clients. So when I come in to help a tech business with their um, with their messaging and their positioning sometimes I feel like I'm doing something almost arrogant, right? Like I'm getting into a space I know nothing about until that point. Um, And if I do my job right, then um, I end up almost teaching them something new about their world. Um, And I help them and their their prospects, you know, see what they do a little differently. And that, you know, that takes a lot of research and questioning your own assumptions and theirs and checking again and again and think, did I really get that right? And um, but when you do get it right and you help a tech brand with their narrative and you know, and they both recognize that story, but also kind of see themselves in a new light, then that's fantastically rewarding. And um, I guess, you know, marketing, good marketing, whether that's B2B or B2C, really um, comes down to empathy Mm. and some sort of insight into your audience. And and I think in B2B, you, you need to flex your, your empathy <laughs> muscles a little bit more because, you know, because it is so niche and because maybe it might be a bit harder to really understand what it's like to be a CTO in a cryptocurrency startup. <laughs> um, um, but when you do get that right, then it just it feels great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Amen. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, Irene, would you mind performing your first official duty as our guest co-host and tell the listener how they can get in touch with us, please? Uh, Yes,
1: uh, absolutely. Um, Listener, if you have any questions or comments, you can um, find Radix on LinkedIn or Twitter. At Radix.com Or if you want us to answer your question on a future episode, Record a quick voice note and send it by email. Podcast at radix-communications.com
0: Excellently done. Thank you.
1: And now it's time for the actual Q&A part of the B2B Q&A. This month, our question comes from marketing strategy consultant, B2B marketing strategy director, and most importantly, gin magnet, um, Andy Bacon. And he's asking about grammar.
0: Hi David and team. Uh, Thank you for a brilliant podcast series. Uh, It's Andy Bacon here. So the question I've got for you is whether grammar is important in copywriting. So for example, may we start a sentence with and. I look forward to um, hearing your deliberations. Thanks team. Bye. Thanks for the kind words, Andy. Flattery, it seems, will indeed get you anywhere. This question raises an issue that I know copywriters, marketers, clients and stakeholders argue about every day. What constitutes correct grammar? Who makes the rules? And how much does it even matter? So to answer, I chatted with a guest that has twin perspectives on the issue. Rishi Dastada is both a poet and head of brand language at Brand Pi, so he knows all about the effects of following and discarding linguistic rules. I started by asking him, how important is it that B2B brands use correct grammar?
2: It is as important as what your brand image and positioning determines it to be, which sounds like a cop-out, and isn't meant to be a cop out, but of course, um, it's really dependent on who you are, what business you're in, and what your brand actually stands for and represents. So, for example, if you are a business who is, um, you know, let's say hypothetically in the business of nuclear safety, you know. I'd really, really, really prefer it if you had a pretty you know, tight grasp on English grammar, partly for clarity, but partly also to convey the sense that you know what you're doing and you follow the rules, and so therefore I can trust you to do similar on the critical things that you do. If you are doing something less life threatening and less national security implication <laughs> you know, with national security implications, then I think you can probably have a little more fun with it. <laughs> I mean yeah, you know, because Grammar does many things. Yes, it's a set of rules. Yes, it's a form of policing. But it also conveys an image and impression as much as anything else. And so if your brand image is actually around breaking some rules, cutting some corners, doing things differently, then actually knowing when to flex away from those rules and what those rules might be perceived to be actually gives you a chance to actually change and mess up your image slightly.
0: And you mentioned perception there and what the rules Mm. are perceived to be. Because um, the example Andy gave, you know, starting a sentence with a conjunction, right? Mm -hmm. Starting a sentence with and or but, that's not really a rule as as far as I can make out. But it's perceived to be a rule.
2: Strictly speaking, it never actually does any harm to start a sentence in that way. Because, you know, are you genuinely saying that meaning is misunderstood if you start with an and or a but? No, clearly not. So then we're into taste, right? And, you know, which way do you go? If you say and enforce a rule like that, you're at some level subliminally suggesting we're a slightly old-fashioned tone of voice. Yeah, we're a slight, you know, we've got these reasons for sticking with these perceived rules. I would suggest that moving away from that probably brings you closer to where the majority of people are writing and speaking right now and if i have aspirations to speak to a relatively larger audience um you know, a relatively mainstream audience i would far rather be on that side of the ledger rather than rather than the other side but again to cycle back to what i said earlier caveat 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 it's what's right for your brand there are absolutely going to be some brands where that stickler for detail that sort of yeah that uh, conveying that level of formality is absolutely right and go ahead but know that that is the case don't just idly fall into the well I was taught this at school so therefore this is the correct way we know that language changes we know that it evolves and grammar and syntax evolves as part of that as well so don't just rely on the assumptions that you might have been taught 20 30 years ago actually yeah listen and see as to what's going on in terms of contemporary diction in terms of contemporary writing and then take your decision based on that as much as
0: anything you might have been taught in the past Absolutely, because I think that it's you know, being seen to break a perceived rule, even is. I mean, you know, starting sense with and and but, you know, Shakespeare did it, Dickens did mm-hmm. it, you know, you're going right back. I mean, Chaucer yeah. did it.
2: It's not that there are hard and fast rules. It is knowing the communication and knowing the audience and knowing the time. You know, I, you know, I don't want a court summons to start... Oyo, oy, watcher see her in the nick,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, that's
2: just not right. But again, you know, if you're sending a chatty email, if you're sending a text message, what, what why wouldn't it? Um, one of the things that means that poetry is, um, you know has the effects that it has that is different often from prose is precisely because of the way that it does play with syntax and break syntax and actually force um reading in particular into places that don't feel necessarily comfortable so you might run on sentences that are you know that are more uncomfortable to read out loud or you might deliberately withhold punctuation or you might do things like um add a conjunction to a word where it's um where it's surprising i mean say for you take the prefix un adding un to almost any noun gives you a poetic effect now strictly speaking you know what you're doing there is is messing around with grammar to achieve something and what you're trying to achieve is a pause in the reader to make them think differently make them consider something uh, you yeah, in a different way. And so you're deliberately trying to break up flow, you're deliberately trying to force a pause in their thought, basically. And that's when knowing how, knowing the power that breaking syntax can have, yeah, that uh, that's when it gives you a, a real, yeah you know, a real force. And so, again, there's that tension between how do I make the rules work for me versus how do I ma- obey the rules? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and we're doing this subconsciously all the time as writers. And we more often than not will do it on the basis of how do I best answer the brief? But some of that consideration and some of the effects that you want to achieve do go in things like, what rules can I break?
0: Just to summarise then, there's um, the rules of grammar, such as we might think of them, you know, that they are probably less clear uh, and and fewer than one might think um mm-hmm. but at the, at the same time whether you it, it's at that point it becomes a style choice it's not correct incorrect grammar it's formal versus informal writing more mm-hmm. often some things are just incorrect grammar but
2: yeah i yeah, some things are, but it, so, if we take a step back, grammar is what? Grammar is effectively the system, the frameworks that allow us to understand. And they, like the content that they support, are subject to flux and change like language itself. So the fundamental question that you are asking is, are the, are the, are the structures and the scaffolding that I am putting my language into, are they functioning to aid understanding? That's your starting point.
0: Thanks again, Andy, for your question. And thank you, Rishi, for such a thoughtful and thought-provoking answer. Irene, I know you have to have some thoughts about this. Care to jump in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the question about grammar, um, my first impulse when I hear that, um, you know, uh, you know can, you, can you use kind of incorrect grammar... Um, I always think, like, what are your assumptions when you say that? Like the person who says that, what, what are they thinking? What are what are the assumptions behind that? As someone who's, um, you know, studied not only languages, but also a bit of uh, linguistics, I think it's like interesting to think about this in terms of prescriptive versus descriptive grammar, right? Like there's prescriptive grammar, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's all about what, you know, there's a right and a wrong and compared to that there 's descriptive grammar, which is all about you know this is how people actually use language these days and um, and so you know obviously there's lots of things that are highly problematic with prescriptive grammar because you know it enforces certain hierarchies and ignores you know minority users of a language, et cetera et etc but I think I mean the thing that really annoys me about it is that it makes people people are so smug about it um And I think behind that is an assumption that knowing the rules of grammar somehow makes you more intelligent. Um, And I think they're often the ones that, you know, end up acting like there's a problem or like they haven't understood something properly, when really, you know, there there was no ambiguity there at all. So I think if we're, you know, if we're thinking about what do they mean? What do you mean by correct grammar? Do you mean, you know, language that's unambiguous and easily understood? Then yeah, Okay. But then language isn't just that, you know, that's just one function of language. You know, there's also, you know, it's also very poetic and emotive and performative and all of that. So um, then I think when we're talking about copywriting, then maybe clarity would be a better term to use and say if it's not clear enough rather than, you know, the grammar isn't correct. Um, Or it's not persuasive enough. That's a different thing, right? Um, Or what do you mean? Do you mean like, do you mean formal expression, do you want to be more formal? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of based on, like, another, what I think is a misconception that formality somehow equals authority, right? That, you know, just mm-hmm. because you, you know, you can dress lang- you can dress up a bad take in a Victorian frock, but it'll still be a bad take. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like you know, Jacob rees Um And
0: so... <laughs> I, I mean, you have um, experience of, of, you know, of, of working in an age, you know, particularly kind of, as a, I guess, as kind of a, a form of velocity writer and things like that, you know, where a lot of the times, you know, you, you will have been kind of pushing things, I guess, to kind of be quite edgy from a, a, a writing style point of view. You must have had that you can't start a sentence with "and" conversation with a client at, at, at some point, right? Yeah, yeah I of mean, course. we've all had that, of course. How do how do you approach something like that?
1: Um, I think you know that. I think it probably sets every copywriter on edge. Um, it's an immediate like trigger, <laughs> but I think you also you do have to. Um, You've got to be quite um, diplomatic, and you really need to—I think—need to try to understand where are they coming from. Is that something they've, you know, that their boss said? Um, is it—is it, you know, something they remember from school, etc.? So I think you need to really engage with, you know, and really talk about what they're trying to do with their piece of copy so that's really what it comes down to you know it's not so much about grammar but about style what what are you trying to do with this do you want to sound different from the rest or do you want to sound exactly like the rest and I think that that's when you then can have a, you can have a conversation um but you do need to be open to kind of almost you know starting with the basics you know what is what is this piece of copy um meant to do for you and I think it's interesting. I just like I had a thought when you you know when you when you um said this is what you you wanted to talk about. I thought actually I can think of a few cases where following the rules of grammar would actually not be appropriate. Um like for instance, right? If I were to kind of especially when it's like some obscure rule, right? Like if I were to insist that the Correct plural of octopus is octopodes because it's from you know actually the Greek rather it's than not like, octopi. And, People uh, think it kind is. Of made a yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like would that? Wouldn't that like? You know that would draw attention to myself, mm. and I'm making a big fuss about something that's not the point. Yeah,
0: and I mean in in B two B tech using data as the plural of datum. You know, and, and, and so the data show rather than the data shows. I mean, who talks like that?
1: Exactly. At the same time, like I speak a bit of Italian and um, and I, I cringe when people order, you know, one panini because that's, you know, panini is plural and it makes me, you know. It makes me cringe. But I'm also aware that if I, you know, I went into the cafe around the corner and ordered one panino. <laughs> I just sound like a bit of a twat, right? So, you know, sometimes you're just going to make a call. So this is why whenever
0: we see you in a cafe, you're eating two paninis. <laughs>
1: That's what happens.
0: Because <laughs> you couldn't order just one.
1: Absolutely. you've I've, Again, I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> and can I
0: ask, if I may, is it different that experience for you as a bilingual person is that something where you've had to kind of learn the rules of English on purpose where for a lot of us we've just kind of who grew up speaking it we just kind of internalize it
1: uh, yeah of course Um yeah of course I've had to learn the rules of English but um but you know I love language and I love you know I love playing with it and um, as a bilingual copywriter you know sometimes when I when I hear a new f- a phrase that I've never heard in English or an idiom, you know, like one of the first things is like, oh, great, I'm going to use you, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try you out, I'm going to play with you. And so, um, you know, that's beautiful. I, you know, for me, the, the interesting stuff, really in any language, happens kind of between, between the rules and in, in the little crevices, you know, between kind of common usage or, 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 or accepted usage. <laughs> Now, it's time to hear our copywriting tip of the month. Come on in, John. Copywriting tip of the month.
0: I'm John Kerrison, and I'm a senior copywriter at Radix Communications. My copywriting tip is to limit your vocabulary. That sounds like the opposite of what a writer should do, but often you'll see people who are just starting out try and flex their inner thesaurus and pepper their copy with words you'd never use in conversation it's important to remember that your job isn't to show off, it's to make things really clear and engaging for your reader. So, as an example, instead of saying, my work suffers from sesquipedalian loquaciousness, you can just say, I use too many long words.
1: Copywriting tip of the month.
0: Please accept our profound and zealous gratitude, John. We are much obliged for the benediction of your most erudite sagacity. Irene,
1: do you care to elucidate further? Uh, not not really except to say uh, john's spot on nice while we're
0: talking about vocabulary and this being episode 101 of the podcast i thought it would be good fun to play room 101 and ask what buzzwords people would like to banish from b2b content forever and they really really didn't hold back irene are you ready for this
1: absolutely i'm really curious to hear these let's go Okay.
0: On Propolis, Steve Chemish and Amanda Holmes would both like to ban ABM. Mm. Natalie Boone thinks Impact has lost its, well, impact. And Skip Fedora would like to see the back of ID8 and Omnichannel.
1: Well, Omnichannel only if you're not writing any e-commerce content, right? I think he prefers
0: multi-channel, but it, you'd have to ask Skip. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, on LinkedIn, it went really wild Nigel Graber nominates Passionate I once wrote a whole blog yep. post about that one totally Ray Philpot hates Key and Innovative Yep. Robert Joy also hates impact. He says it's because people don't know how to use affect and effect. You might have a point. Anya Jones, Colin Gentry, Mark Brighton, and Katie Young all want to ban leverage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nick Simpson wants to eject solution into space. Yep, totally with that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and a lot of hate for utilise, uh, including from Anna S., Ben Rotheray, and Colin Gentry and so many more facilitate best in class new normal yep. collaboration mm-hmm. transformation disruptive b2p
1: yes ai
0: peace as in a piece of content not as in the concept of peace i hope uh holistic opportunity empower basically there's blood in the water I'm guilty of a few of those <laughs> yes Uh, It became an absolute feeding frenzy uh, on LinkedIn. Special mention to Julian Tittinger, who wants to ban the word cloud. That's a big shout.
1: Yeah, good luck with that one. It's up to you,
0: Irene. So let's open the door to room 101. What one word shall we lock in there forever? Just one. Yeah, I'm only giving you one. The whole of B2B content would collapse if we took all of those out, right?
1: Very true. So um, if it's just one, I am going to go with um, my absolute uh, pet peeve, which is uh, utilise. Oh,
0: (laughs) yes. I can hear the people cheering from here. Utilise, in you go, and we'll slam the door.
1: Right then, job done. Nice. Nice. My absolute pet peeve wasn't on the list. And it's less of a B2B tech content word. It's more of a LinkedIn word. And it's humbled.
0: Ooh, that's a big shout. That's a really big (laughs) shout. (laughs) And that is all we have time for this episode. Irene, please would you thank this month's contributors?
1: Yes. So huge thanks to uh, Rishi Dastada for the interview and Andy Bacon for the question. I uh, hope you feel we've answered it adequately. Thanks also to John for the copywriting tip of the month and to all the many, many people who've vented about their most hated B2B buzzwords and cliches. Uh, Sorry we couldn't mention everyone.
0: And thanks to you, Irene, you have been an awesome co-host. Um, If the listener wants to get in touch with you or hear more of your your wisdom and your thoughts, how can they do that?
1: Um, Well, you can um, check out my website at uh, saywhat.org where I post uh, blog posts less frequently than I'd like to. Um, You could uh, email me at irene at saywhat.org or you could just uh, connect with me on LinkedIn brilliant
0: and we'll put uh, links to uh, all of that in the the show notes as well um listener remember it could be your question that we answer in a future episode
1: if you have a question for b2b q a to answer email a voice memo to podcast at radix-communications.com or find us on social media
0: I'll see you next month for another B2B Q&A when we'll be answering why is there so little humour in B2B content. If you have thoughts or answers, do send them our way. Until then, make good content. And remember, no court in the world is going to accept the absence of a comma as grounds for killing and eating your grandma. Goodbye! Goodbye.